When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash Counselor Toolbox. Counselor Toolbox podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, providing accessible and affordable counseling services via messaging, live chat, phone, or video. To apply to be a counselor at BetterHelp with no overhead fees or cost, go to BetterHelp.com toolbox. You can also find a counselor by going to BetterHelp.com toolbox and clicking on Get Started in the upper right corner. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation. We're continuing the Journey to Recovery series, and today we're going to be talking about goal setting. Now, a lot of us... Um, are familiar with goal setting we set goals all the time heck when we write treatment plans we're goal setting but what i really want to talk about is how do we teach clients how to set goals so we're going to help them or we're going to identify for ourselves so we can articulate the purpose of setting goals we're going to review the concept of smart goals and how to set them and figure out how to teach that to clients and then we'll explore pitfalls in goal setting and these are also pitfalls in treatment planning that we can look at to see you know where did we miss the boat why did this person or why did i if it's your own goal not end up achieving my goal why did i either lose my motivation or you know what happened in the process goal setting is an, an integral part of behavior change you know if you want to change your behavior you generally start with some kind of goal you know if i wake up and i want to get in shape or i want to stop smoking or i want to have more patience or whatever it is that's a goal it may not be a great smart goal but it's a general goal so we need to start with that in order for people to stay motivated to achieve their goal they need to have a reason for it they need to see that reason for it so setting that goal is important in order to give them motivation to do what they need to do to get that goal goal setting is something everyone does every day now there are the big goals that we set like new year's resolutions but then there are the little goals that we set like you know i wanted to get a chapter finished in my book yesterday got it finished you know that that was a small goal and I set a lot of daily goals because those daily goals add up and y'all know I tend to be on the J side of the spectrum for um, in temperament so I like things that are structured so I like having things broken down into a lot of objectives in order to help me achieve my goals ineffective goals can have a negative impact on self-esteem think about clients that we've had that we've you know worked with and developed treatment plans and then they don't succeed and they end up dropping out or if you've tried to do something like get in shape lose weight stop smoking whatever it is and you haven't succeeded hmm you may feel like a failure 
You may feel like you're incompetent in some way. You may be very frustrated with yourself. And the first thing I encourage clients to do is to separate behaviors from self. You know, we really focus when we're talking about goals. We also do a lot of talking about unconditional positive regard. They are a good person. You are a good person. Now, you may have failed at achieving that goal, but that doesn't mean that you as a person are a failure. And I really emphasize semantics here. Ineffective goals can make people mistakenly think that they're helpless to change anything. So if you're working with a client who is having relationship difficulties and she decides that, you know what, if I lose 30 pounds, then maybe my spouse will be interested in me and stop cheating on me. Well, okay. Um, so we want to look at, is this really the reason that your spouse is cheating on you? Because if you lose those 30 pounds and you don't get that goal then you may feel even more helpless. So we want to make sure that the clients are identifying why this is happening. It may have nothing to do with her weight. It may have more to do with something going on in his head or something. Um, so those are all the thing, all things that we want to look at. Um, when I work with clients and, and we start into this activity, I encourage them to share other reasons why goals are important and, you know, what kinds of goals that they set, goals that they've been successful at and goals that they haven't been so successful at. And we just kind of throw those out there so we can work with them throughout the class. So I've done something similar to this in other classes, like on treatment planning and stuff, but with clients, I try to you know, again, have them walk through the goal-setting process so they can see where there might be pitfalls. If you teach, and, and a lot of us do psychoed, so we've, you've been in a position to teach things or you have kids or something, and you make logical leaps in your mind that you don't think need to be articulated because it's so second nature to you and your student or kid or whatever is sitting there looking at you going, how did you get from here to here? You know, that's usually the look I had on my face in most of my stats classes. How did you figure out that next step? Okay, let's, let's back up a second. Um, so we want to help clients figure out pitfalls that they may have in goal setting and start understanding why objectives are important because they're those micro steps that we take. So I tell them, let's think about preparing an authentic Italian meal. What's the first thing you have to do? You know, and, and I let them brainstorm what the first thing is and sometimes we go a little off into never never land here so i bring them back and i say the first thing we've got to do is learn what an authentic italian meal consists of it's not just a pizza or spaghetti an authentic italian meal has side dishes and beverages and main courses and side dishes and all kinds of stuff um, so what goes into it if you were going to have an authentic italian meal with you know a person what would it look like? So you learn about chicken cacciatore and pizza and lasagna and um, stuffed shells and the side dishes and all that kind of stuff. And you're going to be hungry by the end of this slide. Uh, and then we start talking about what is going to be in your meal. Because there's all kinds of opportunities and options for an authentic Italian meal. We know there need to be certain aspects of a meal, like the main dish and the side dish and the beverage. But within those groups we have some latitude so what is going to be in your meal okay you've decided that you're going to um make lasagna broccoli and 
um, you know, have red wine with it or something. I don't know. Okay, great. Now you have to learn how to prepare that meal. You know, take it from knowledge of what you want to do. You have this big idea to skills. If I'm going to prepare this, how in the world do I do it? First step is to identify what ingredients you need for that meal and get what you don't have. So, you know, you look through your cupboard, you figure out if you've got the right noodles and tomato sauce and all that kind of stuff. And then you get the ingredients that you don't have. And I'm going somewhere with this, trust me. And then you want to figure out what's the next step? What order do I do this in? Do I just dump everything into a pan and throw the dry noodles in it and, you know, pray? Hopefully not. Um, <laughs> there are very specific steps that you take and processes that you go through. So we talk a lot about walking through this. And, you know, I only spend like three or four minutes, but we go through that kind of how I just did. And then I go back and I ask them, okay, now how do you think this parallels making your behavior change, making your recovery plan? And the goal is to get them to identify the fact that first they have to learn about their presenting issue, addiction, depression, anxiety, bipolar, whatever it is. Then they have to decide or learn about what is what symptoms of that disorder they have. Because remember, when you go through the DSM, it'll often say they have to have three out of the following seven characteristics. So the way depression looks for John may be very different than the way depression looks for Tom. Okay, that's fine. So what does your depression look like? All right. Now you need to learn about how to address the symptoms of your depression, just like you need to learn how to prepare your Italian meal. Okay. The next step, identifying the ingredients for that meal, is like identifying the skills and tools you need to deal with your depression. So you've learned that DBT may help, for example. Great. Now we have to identify what skills, DBT kind of skills you already have, and what ones you need, still need to learn. And then you have to learn how to put it all together. So you go from knowledge, general knowledge, to specific knowledge, to skills, and then to abilities, which is taking those skills and actually applying them and generalizing them. A lot of times when I do this, I will, on the whiteboard, I'll draw a line down the middle, and we'll do the recipe on one side, and then we'll do a treatment plan for depression or something on the other side, so they can see the parallels and see how it's really not overly complicated. And most people get hung up because they try to make it too complicated. So SMART goals. Once they've kind of figured out the general knowledge, specific knowledge, skills and abilities, great. Now, when you're setting your goals, you want to set specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, um, and time-limited goals. So you want to make sure that if you're setting a goal like recovery from depression, well, it's great. You know, that, that's a great goal, but it's not specific or measurable. So we need to talk a little bit more about how do we make that specific and measurable. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Um, achievable? Sure. You know, I truly believe it's achievable or I wouldn't be in the field. Is, are their goals realistic and relevant? You know, is what they're choosing to do in order to achieve their goal, is that going to help them achieve their goal? And time limited. We don't want to say, you know, I want to achieve recovery from depression, 
eventually. That, that's not real motivating. And then people are just like, they feel like they're going on forever. You know, that light at the end of the tunnel that seems to keep getting further away. We want them to have timestamps or, or deadlines or whatever you want to call it, where they can say, in six weeks, I can expect or I hope to expect to feel this way. In 12 weeks, you know, yada, yada, yada. So think about, and I'm encouraging you to do this, think about the last goal that you set that was successful. And I usually do a um, talk on this right around um, New Year's resolution time because this is the time people are sometimes setting goals. And, you know, whenever, whenever I go to the gym, January and February, it is jam-packed. A little bit after, after uh, Valentine's Day, starting to dwindle. By March, ain't nobody there anymore. Um, so one of the things is um, figuring out which goals you set that have been successful. And a lot of times, well, and then think about a goal that you set that you tried to achieve and just didn't make it. So what was the difference between the two? And it could be that it was not a good goal because it was not specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, realistic, or time limited. Or you just didn't have the motivation for it. And, you know, we talked a lot about motivation the other day. If you don't have the motivation, it doesn't matter how good the um, goal is. If you're not motivated, you're not going to do it. Okay. Goals. What and why? So we want to start out with helping people set a goal that identifies what they want to do and why they want to do it. So the what is obvious, the why is the motivation. I want to stop smoking so that I can, whatever. Goals are the overarching reason a person begins to do something. So, you know, if they want to get in shape, for example, and, you know, that's a common New Year's resolution. All right. If they want to address their depression, they want to feel better. Okay, great. Goals are often broad and abstract, and they need to be broken down into manageable, meaningful, observable objectives. So one of the things that you want to remember is when you're setting goals, like I want to be happier or be less depressed, I like to state it in the positive. So what is the opposite of depressed? Happy. So I want to be happier, and here's the observable, measurable, measurable part, as evidenced by... And then you want to start identifying, you know, three or four things that are going to be different when you're not depressed anymore. That helps us identify, yes, this person's achieved this or no, they haven't. But if it's, the goals are not observable and measurable, then you never really know when you've achieved it. It's kind of like running across a finish line. If there's no line there, there's nobody standing there, you don't know exactly where that mile marker is. And like I said, do try to state them in terms of adding a positive or the positive opposite of your, the problem statement instead of just, I don't want to be depressed. Well, that's great. You know, I'm glad you don't want to be depressed, but what do you want to be instead? You know, depression's easy because it's happy. But, um, you know, what is the definition of the resolution instead of the definition of the problem? So what are the symptoms of the problem? Um, the S in SMART is specific. Specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-limited. Um, so start with the problem definition. What are the symptoms of the problem? Client comes in, they say, Doc, I'm depressed. All right. 
well, what does depression look like for you? And he says, I'm sleeping all the time and I just never feel rested. Um, I have just absolutely no pleasure in anything, just that apathy going on, a lot of guilt feelings and difficulty concentrating. Let's just say those four. Okay. So those are our problem statements. So our goal statements are going to be the opposite of those. We're going to improve concentration. We're going to improve sleep. We're going to help the person feel happier. And you can do this on a Likert scale. We'll talk about in a minute. Um, and I don't remember what the other one was, was that I said. Uh, this is why I write things down. But <laughs> you want to state your goals in terms of what are you going to see when the person achieves their goal? How are the symptoms impacting your overall functioning? This helps us see the why do we want to change? Why is this poor sleep, lack of energy, apathy, and difficulty concentrating? How is this impacting your functioning at work, in your relationships, and just your general health? What is your perception of the problem? Is it, you know, a little annoying, or is it a huge problem? If they're in our office, it's probably a huge problem because most people are not going to start paying for counseling until it's bothersome enough to be willing to pay for it. What are your strengths in relation to resolving this problem? Um, and, I, and I often stop here with clients and I say, what does this mean? What are your strengths? And, you know, sometimes they're, they're going to jump right on the bandwagon. Other times they kind of look at me quizzically. Um, and we talk about the fact that strengths are skills and tools that you already have and resources that you already have that have helped you deal with this problem in the past or you think could help you deal with this problem in the future. So skills and tools could include prayer, meditation, um, cognitive behavioral exercises that you're adept at doing, um, social supports, you know, financial supports that will enable you to, you know, have respite from taking care of your kids or something if you need to have an hour away every day or, or whatever it is. But we want to start brainstorming what strengths, which includes skills, um, skills and resources, not just skills, but skills and resources that the person has. Resources also include supportive others that are in the environment. So they know that, you know, they have, you know, they can call Jane if they're having a bad moment. So now we've de defined what's going on why it's a problem, what their strengths are, and then we're stating this goal. Remember, I keep saying the positive. In general, if this problem is resolved, what will be different? You know, so this is where we're saying, instead of saying, I just want to eliminate, we're saying, what is going to be there? How is your garden going to blossom? Um, if people get stuck with that, you can say, what is the absence of the problem? And when I do this in groups, a lot of times I'll put up multiple problems on the board that are common treatment plan issues, including low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, addiction, um, relationship problems, you know, things that are real general. They're not specific at all. And then we start making them specific as, by adding the as evidenced by. And then we start working on the goal development. So if you're having relationship problems as evidenced by fighting a lot, you know, I'm going to want to get a lot to be a little bit more measurable, but um, fighting a lot, unhappiness in your relationship and, you know, whatever. Okay, that's the problem statement. The goal statement is to increase the number of days or the frequency that you have days that are argument-free, if you will. And 
you can state it more eloquently than that. Um, and increasing your self-reported level of comfort and satisfaction with the relationship. Okay, that's the goal. It's measurable. You know, we're, we'll use a Likert scale, one to five. Um, another way you can ask it is what's the absence of the problem. But when I have clients go through these and really articulate the as evidenced by and the alternative, the goal statement, they start getting the hang of looking at the positive, looking at what am I going to have? How will your best friend know when you've achieved your goal? That's another way to ask the same question. These are three different ways to ask the same question, depending on how stuck your client is or, you know, how they think, the, what makes it easiest for them to wrap their head around um, developing this. When I do treatment plans, I do it with the client, and we go through this together, and sometimes it can be a little bit arduous if they haven't gone through this group first, but that's okay because I want them to feel empowered, and I want the treatment plan to make sense. Um, one way to elicit goals, because sometimes clients come in and they're just like, I feel like crap. I want to feel better. I don't know what's wrong. Make it stop. <laughs> okay, glad you're here. So if you woke up tomorrow and you weren't depressed anymore, what would be different? And even if it's individual work, I love, I have a whiteboard in my, in my office for individual counseling. Because, again, I'm a visual learner, so I like jotting things down where the client can see it as opposed to jotting it down on a notepad or something. So I say, okay, emotionally, what would be different? You know, you would be happier more of the time, okay? Mentally, what would be different? And we talk about, can, are you having difficulty concentrating? Um, is your creativity in the crapper? You know, what's going on? Um, socially, what would be different? Physically, what would be different? And we go through each one of those. If you remember from Tuesday, your MEEPs. Mental, emotional, environmental, physical, and social. Uh, we go through each of those areas to identify how their life is going to be different as well as the same when they are, when they've achieved their goal, you know, when they're happy, if that's where they're going for. Because that gives us a better idea of what is the observable, measurable endpoint. Happy is just kind of out there because what's happening. How I define happy may not be how you define happy. The miracle question provides insight into the symptoms and definition of the problem, as well as motivations for change. If they say, for example, you know, I am really depressed right now, and I will know that the problem is resolved, or if I woke up tomorrow and it was resolved, my relationships with my kids would be a lot better because I'd have more energy to go to their ball games. Okay. So now we see one reason they want to do it and one observable outcome. So we've got motivation as well as a uh, outcome that we can mark off from that. So the miracle question can be kind of cool. I find it's more useful, and maybe it's the way that I ask it, um, that, that it doesn't work quite as well. If I ask them to fill this out as an essay between sessions, it usually falls a little flat. They don't know what to do with it. Most of the time, I find that it tends to be more productive and effective if we at least go through one problem statement in the office and I walk them through each of the MEEPs. Okay, so um, specific. You know, we're, we've talked about goals and everything. Now we're going to get into SMART. Specific. We want to talk about the overall goal for treatment. So you got to start out with, well, what's the problem? We don't know the goal unless we know what the problem is. The problem is point A. The goal 
is theoretically point B. We start out with those two endpoints and then we chart our path between them. How will you know when the problem is resolved emotionally, mentally, and physically? Um, so some things that clients have said when we're talking about depression is emotionally, I won't feel as hopeless and helpless or blah. <laughs> um, I won't dread getting out of bed. That's another one I hear a lot of times is they just they dread doing anything. Um, guilt is another one that may change because a lot of people who are experiencing clinical depression are also experiencing a lot of guilt, sometimes worry. Mentally, I won't be so foggy-headed and I'll be able to concentrate better. Okay, so that's a good, good end point there. Physically, I'll have more energy. I won't want to sleep all the time. And with all that, I may lose some weight because right now I'm just sitting on the couch, eating food, watching Netflix all day long. Okay, so cool. We have other things that we're working at. And socially, when people are clinically depressed, generally they're not all about hanging out with their buds, which means a significant portion of their social support is gone. You know, they just don't even have the energy to interface with people, even though people po possibly could help them feel better. So we want to help them enjoy spending time with friends again. So that those are specific things we can say. The question is, how do we measure it? Um, well, I guess we're still on specific for a moment. So the main issue, remember, learn about general, learn about the overall problem of depression, learn about your symptoms of depression, because there are a bunch of things that can cause fatigue and confusion, including dehydration and hypothyroid that are not cognitive causes. So we want to find out what might be triggering it for that person. And then help them identify ways to address their specific symptoms and the causes and triggers of those symptoms. If they've got hypothyroid, then they may need to take medication. If they've got, um, you know, maybe they're fatigued all the time because they're not getting good rest because their bedroom's too hot and they're not comfortable at night. Or they let the dog stay in the room and the dog licked himself all night long. Um, <laughs> you know, we want to look at the things that are contributing to the symptoms because then we need to figure out how to address those symptoms measurable all right so we have these great goals we have an idea about what we want to address and in order to figure out if we're making progress we need to be able to measure it just like when you are taking your kid to the pediatrician you know they get their height weight all that kind of stuff every time every time they go in um if you're trying to lose weight you get on the scale if you're trying to stop smoking and you're not doing it cold turkey you try to track how many cigarettes you're smoking each day and start cutting down whatever it is those are measurements so there are three different ways we can measure and you can use any combination but I want you to be flexible when you realize what when you're setting your measuring because sometimes people are like I have no idea how to measure that well anything most anything can be measured you just have to be a little creative so frequency is the number per time and it can be the number of crying episodes a day if somebody's clinically depressed maybe they're crying you know six times a day you can also if we're going to stick with crying look at duration you know instead of crying all day long for hours and hours maybe crying um you know only crying for 15 or 20 minutes at a time and we can look at intensity when the person is crying are they sobbing or are they weepy you know any type is better and think about when you're dealing with somebody who's struggling with some pretty complicated grief 
you know, crying may be something that is intermittent throughout the day. So if we can help them reduce the frequency, the intensity, and the duration, well, great. You know, but they may not want to track all three of those. So you can just pick one. Number of eating episodes not due to hunger each day. So if you're working with somebody who's an emotional eater or a stress eater, um, maybe they want to start addressing that so they can keep a, a log keep a hash mark um, in their journal about how many times they went to the kitchen to eat when they weren't hungry, and they can start tracking that. Or they can look at intensity. So if they ate not due to hunger, how many calories did they consume? Because some people have difficulty breaking that habit, but if they can switch from half a bag of Oreos to an apple, that's going to help them start getting close to that goal. So we want to help them make those small steps and then what we call shaping in behavior modification um, in order to get to their ultimate goal. Duration is another thing that you can look at. Um, frequency of wake-ups during the night. If you wake up seven times during the night, you're probably not getting good sleep. So if you can help people stay asleep once they get asleep, you know, by developing better sleep hygiene, that's good. Or the duration. How long were you asleep during your, your sleep period? So if they can sleep for three hours at a time, that's a whole lot better than for 30 minutes at a time. When trying to change, it's important to make sure that clients increase a positive behavior. So whatever they're doing right now is serving a function. And if you take that away, you got to give them something else to do instead. When we work with children, we talk about positive redirection. When you know, when you think about it, if you're smoking, for example, in order to deal with stress, all right, well, if you don't smoke, then when you get stressed out, what are you going to do instead? You need to have something that serves a similar function. Instead of stress eating, maybe crochet, because sometimes it's, you just need something to do with your hands, because you're in the habit of hand-to-mouth sort of thing. Um... Or, and crocheting, especially if you're following a pattern, takes a fair amount of concentration, or knitting, if you will. Um, instead of measuring how sad you feel, measure how happy you feel. So on that Likert scale, one would be blah, <laughs> two would be I'm feeling okay, three would be I'm feeling content, four would be I'm feeling happy, five would be I'm feeling elated, giddy as a schoolgirl, wh whatever you want to call it. Give them word anchors so they can really clearly identify, yeah, I'm feeling content. I'm, I'm better than okay. I'm feeling pretty content right now. Positive behaviors serve roughly the same function and are incompatible with the behavior you are trying to eliminate, ideally. So if you're laughing, you're probably not crying, unless you're laughing so hard you're crying. Um, if you are crocheting, then you're probably not eating. Um, because you don't want to get food all over your yarn and stuff. So ideally, find behaviors that serve a similar function that are incompatible with the other behavior. And keep it simple. Don't get overburdened and don't overburden clients with measuring too much or trying to change too many things. Choose one or two things to measure and stick with that. And, you know, then reassess over a period of time after a few weeks to see if you're getting closer to that goal. But there's no reason to measure the frequency, intensity, and duration of four different behaviors. Just do 
Likert scales are really good because they're fast. You know, the person circles a one, two, three, four, or five, and they're done, which increases compliance with baseline and data collection. So you can have people identify goals for each of the following in order to make them observable and measurable. And, you know, we've gone through all these permutations and discussions and stuff. So then I hand them out a, a sheet with each, uh, each of these things on a piece of paper or the flip charts around the room. And I have them go around, if they're, we're doing the flip, flip charts, in breakout groups and identify at least one goal that is specific, measurable, achievable, and time-limited for each, each of these things. That way, again, they're getting used to it. They're practicing it. And they're going to have practiced it like four times by the time they get out of group. Identify at least two ways for each goal that identifies goal achievement. So how will you know when you have achieved this goal? What are two ways you will know when you've achieved this goal? When you've lost weight? Well, first we have to figure out how much weight are you going to lose. So if you want to lose 10 pounds, okay, great. Two ways you'll know. The scale and the way your clothes fit. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be super difficult, but that gives people things to look out for. Achievable, realistic, and time-limited. It's important that people remember that Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, if they've been doing this behavior for 15 years, it's not going to be gone in 15 days. That's just the way it is. It can start getting better, but it's not going to just disappear magically overnight. We want to build our goals on prior strengths and individualize them. So instead of saying, okay, everything you've always done to try to stop smoking, forget it. We're going to, I'm going to teach you something completely new. Don't even bother with any of that stuff you already know. That's like teaching somebody to, you know, get from one place to the other to pro propel themselves by crawling instead of walking. Um, well, I guess we've already learned how to crawl, so that doesn't even apply. Riding a unicycle instead of doing something they already can do. Um, you know, most people don't know how to ride a unicycle, but you could achieve the same thing by letting them ride a bicycle or walk. Um, so it's important to build on prior strengths because prior strengths, they already have some memory pathways, which means it's going to be easier to call on those things when they're under stress. Make sure they're setting goals on something that they're motivated and able to change. So I'll go around the room and I'll ask clients, you know, what's one thing that you would like to change right now or one change you would like to make? Um, and, you know, we'll get a variety of things. And then I go around and I say, all right, on a scale of one to five, and I write it up on the board, one, not motivated at all, two, eh, I could, three, pretty motivated, four, very motivated, or five, let's do this. How motivated are you to do what it takes to make this change? And I encourage them to really look at the things that they are, are um, wanting to change and make sure that they're able to change them. There are some things they may want to do that they're just not able to change. For example, fixing their relationship. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. But a relationship is a two-way street. So, you know, unless they are the sole problem in the relationship, there's only so much that they can change. So we want to make sure that they're not setting themselves up for failure by thinking, if I do this, that, and the other thing, then my relationship will be perfect again. You know, we want to make sure it's realistic. Have them set weekly goals, daily goals, and sometimes hourly goals. Um, when you're working with somebody who's clinically depressed, 
you know, having them set hourly goals of if I can get through an hour without crying or somebody who's in uh, detox, if I can get through an hour without using or the morning without using, not even a full day, then, you know, that's progress. And then once you can do that regularly, then get through an entire day without using because a half day's progress followed by another half day's progress is a whole day's progress. But it seems less overwhelming if you're looking at it in small, um, small increments. Think of a behavior change like learning lines for a play. You wouldn't expect people to read the script once and know it. They've got to rehearse. So people, when they're making changes, are going to need prompts and assistance. They're going to be, need somebody to give them a little nudge here. You know, you remember, this is what you're supposed to do. Oh, yeah, I got it now. Um, so encourage them to be compassionate with themselves and not expect perfection. You know, that's not an excuse for relapse, but not expect for perfection. If they're trying to do the next right thing, it's going to be difficult. You know, there's going to be a little mini crisis there. That's okay. Um, and recognize that as they learn this new behavior and it becomes more second nature, they're going to need fewer prompts. But at the beginning, they're going to need more prompts. I mean, another way you can look at it, if you've ever had kids and you've taught them to tie their shoes. You know, the first couple of weeks after you teach them to tie their shoes, you need to sit there and go, okay, make the rabbit ear and, you know, walk them through each step. But then you start backing off a little bit. Um, and it's called scaffolding in behavior modification. But you may back off and let them start and see how far they can get before they need a prompt. And then each time they do it, they're probably going to get a little bit farther. So the hook. And this is another way to increase motivation. But we want to make sure that um, once they've set these great goals, and they're observable and measurable, realistic, time-limited, now, now we have to know who's responsible for doing what, when, where, why, and how. This is the action map. So who's going to do it? Is it the client who is supposed to read a book? Is it the clinician who's supposed to give them a reading assignment and then process it with them? After the client reads it, I need to know who's doing what parts of it, when, you know. Um, so if I give you, if I give a client a handout, you know, when are they supposed to have it read by? And then, you know, that's your when. Why are they doing it? Well, I'm not going to give them a handout and go, just read this and we'll talk about it next week. I'm going to say, read this because it will help you understand a little bit more about, you know, how your diabetes may be impacting your depression. And then we'll talk about it next week. So that may, I want to make sure that they understand why they're doing it and how reading this handout or doing whatever it is they're doing is helping them meet their ultimate goal. So remember the who, what, when, where, why, and how. So as an example, if the main issue, again, is depression and, you know, the treatment plan begins on August 1st of 2016. So the person's going to learn about the overall problem of depression by reading one chapter of XYZ book, which is a great book, by the way, and the handouts provided by Dr. Snipes each week for five weeks. So that is observable. Um, it is measurable. There is a time limit on it because they're going to read one chapter each week for five weeks, and they're going to do it in order to help them learn about the overall problem. I am, they're going to do the reading and I am going to provide the handouts. So, you know, we have all those W's answered. The next one, 
I will learn about my symptoms. This is going to be successive because I have to learn about the general stuff first. I will learn about my symptoms, causes, and triggers by taking notes on what sounds like me as I read the book and handouts about depression. I will review my notes each week. And you could have even said review it with your therapist. For each symptom I have that's specific, I will create an action plan to learn about its causes and interventions and develop a plan of action. You could technically break this into two objectives here. And each morning and evening, I, and I as the client, will do a mindfulness scan and rate on a scale from one to four my happiness and explain my response. I will review this log each Friday in order to identify patterns and trends so we can help them you know, see the rationale behind what they're doing and help them keep track of what they're supposed to be doing. For fatigue, you know, again, it's very similar. Learn about the symptom um, each week for five weeks. Learn about the causes by taking notes on what sounds like me. I will identify ways to address it. And then each morning and evening, I will rate my fatigue or my energy level, if you want to be positive, and explain my response. So, putting it all together, writing the plan, goals need to be meaningful for the person. They need to be specific and observable, measurable, realistic, supported by sub-goals, which are your ob objectives, and using the knowledge, skills, and abilities, general knowledge, knowledge about my instance of this problem, what skills I have and what skills I need. And abilities are actually taking those skills and actually figuring out how to use them, not just talk about them. And we need to address the reasons for not changing. Just like we talked about in motivation, we need to make sure that we're regularly kind of reviewing this. Motivational exercises, you know, just real quick, again, decisional balance. When you look at the benefits of change, you want to look at the MEEPs. Um, mental, emotional, environmental, physical, social. Um, I have financial and occupational here. You know, um, you can choose your, your prompts as you will. And you want to look at the drawbacks to change. You want to look at the benefits of staying the same because there are benefits or they wouldn't be doing it right now. And the drawbacks to staying the same. Complete this on each unique behavior and repeat it often. So when we're talking about doing a decisional balance exercise, we're not talking about depression recovery. We're talking about a specific behavior such as practicing better sleep hygiene. Why do I want to do this? Because if we're talking about something as broad as depression recovery, there's probably going to be some things in there that they're really motivated to do and some things in there that they're like, yeah, not so much. No, no, not, not doing that. <laughs> I am not going to start exercising or whatever it is. So you want to be very specific with the motivational exercises. Pitfalls. Considering, uh, failing to consider why the person currently does or does not engage in certain behaviors. If they are a couch potato and they're thinking that they want to get in shape, well, that's wonderful. But let's think about why do they currently sit on the couch and why do they not currently go exercise? And... Those are two different things. So they may sit on the couch because they're really stressed out. They're not getting enough sleep. They're fatigued, don't have a lot of energy. Um, and sitting on the couch and watching Netflix or whatever is, is comfortable. You know, let's just face it. Um, so those are reasons why they may currently do their, their current behavior. 
they may not go to the gym because or work out because they don't know how you know some people haven't done anything physical since like eighth grade pe and they're the gym seems very intimidating um and even going out walking and stuff can feel very um ominous to them so we want to understand the reasons that the apprehensions you have about starting this as well as the reasons you're doing the current behavior if they're not exercising right now because they're just plumb too exhausted and too depressed then we need to make sure that the goals we set for starting to exercise are achievable that means that not setting a goal of going to the gym five days a week but going outside and pulling weeds or walking the dog for 20 minutes a day you know nothing too strenuous because we want them to succeed we want them to start moving a little bit and we may need to address other things first you know maybe there's just too much going on for them to have the energy so we may need to get them to get a physical first setting goals that are too big you know people want to build Rome in a day and it ain't gonna happen you're not gonna lose 30 pounds in a week um, you are not going most people are not going to completely stop smoking and not have any cravings in 30 days. Um, so we want to make sure that the goal is small enough and, and not too hard. You know, if somebody wants to quit smoking, for example, and they're like, nope, I'm going to do it cold turkey and that's just going to be that. I'm going to make up my mind to do it. Well, we know from the research that there's that, that's really, really, really freaking hard. Um, do I want to, am, am I going to disempower them by going, well, you can't do that? No. But I am going to encourage them to be aware of the options that are available. Um, if they're setting too many goals, you know, and we've all done this occasionally where we've decided that um, we're going to do six things at once. And we're going to try to work on our self-esteem, improve our depression, lose weight, and, ah, oh, heck, let's improve our relationships while we're at it you can't spread yourself that thin so encourage people to set one or two goals because every positive change is going to produce positive changes in every other area so if they just start by getting better quality sleep which will help them have more energy they're probably going to see positive changes in the rest rest of their goals small changes and then this is what we call rapid cycle change so they do that whatever that change is they work on it for a month and if they're seeing that it's successful and they're having good luck with it and they feel like they're kind of in a groove okay then you can add another one think about jugglers they start out with two balls or apples or whatever it is then they add a third one and once they get into that groove then they may add a fourth one and a fifth one so that's kind of what we're doing I encourage people not to add five goals at once but you know a lot of times with goals you have two going and then you add a third one well then the first first goal gets completed so then you're back down to two and you pick up a third one um, so those are things that you can encourage clients to think about this is not a sprint it's a marathon because you want to do it and you want these changes to stick setting goals without sufficient rewards it's great to cognitively think you want to do something but you have to have those levels of motivation you have to have ideally social sources of motivation you have to have emotional sources of motivation doing this will make you happier for some reason logical sources of motivation 
ideally physical sources of motivation. It'll help you feel better, more rested, more energetic, whatever. Maybe even financial or environmental um, aspects of motivation. So maybe you say, you know, if I do all of this, you know, maybe if I restrain my spending for six months, then I can use all the money that I would have spent, you know, shopping online to go on a vacation to Tahiti. You know, okay. You know, that is a good reward. So it's important to make sure that the person has rewards that are rewarding for them at the end of the at the end of each goal. Like I said, when you start, set small goals that can, initially that can be completed in a day and then a week and then a month. So you're getting those rewards periodically. Think about how you would feel if you went to work and you had to go to work for 6 months before you got paid. Your motivation would kind of wane there and you start being your effort would probably start waning on the things that you didn't like to do. Setting goals that are too specific, oddly enough, can also be a pitfall. If you say, I want to lose 15 pounds in two months, um, you know, things may happen. So if people set this goal that's extraordinarily specific and it doesn't come to fruition exactly as the way they intended, they may feel frustrated about it. Or I want to be able to run a uh, 10K in under 55 minutes by November. That's two months from now. Um, that's not even realistic, really. Um, but that's also maybe too specific. Maybe I should say I want to take five minutes off of my current 10K time. Failing to individualize to their temperament is a, another thing. If they're doing, making a change, and they're one of those people who need some spontaneity, and they have scheduled their days, like, jam up in order to get everything done to achieve their goals, they may feel overwhelmed um, and, and get bored with it. So they need some wiggle room in there. Another activity we do, remember I said clients, you know, usually go through this goal-setting activity three or four times in group because I want them to feel comfortable with it. Um, I have them write out instructions for how to do laundry and give it to someone or act as if they're giving it to someone who doesn't know how to do it. When I taught my son how to do laundry, you know, I was bad. I, I skipped over things that just seemed obvious to me, like, where do you put the laundry detergent? And I'm like, well, in the little cup that says detergent. But that wasn't obvious to him. So, you know, it's important to really look at those objectives. So have them write out the instructions for laundry and then think about how complete were your instructions. And I usually develop a rubric for it, um, which is right here. So I have them look at their instructions and I say, okay, let's go through this. Did you remember to tell them that they, they needed to sort the clothes? Did you remember to tell them that they needed to look at the tags for care instructions? Yeah, we've had some dry clean only go into the washer. Um, did you explain how to choose which temperature to wash things in? Did you explain how much detergent to use or how to handle stains or heavily soiled laundry? You know, all of those things are things that, you know, I've been doing laundry for 35 years, so I'm, I'm pretty adept at it, but... My son, who hasn't, you know, those are things that he doesn't know. And I just assume, you know, people know that. Yeah, you know what they say about assuming. So then, you know, if we've got extra time, I have them write out instructions for something that they don't know about. And that means they have to go learn and write it out and um, 
work from there. Once they do that, I ask them, you know, did you, if you were learning to swim, I don't know anything about rebuilding a car, did you identify sub goals? So, you know, first the person needs to know how to float and then you know, whatever. Were the sub goals observable, measurable, and realistic? You know, first they knew how to float, then they learned how to tread water, then they learned how to doggy paddle, um, you know, yada, yada. Did you identify reasons someone would be motivated to put forth the effort to achieve this goal? So why would they want to swim? You know, maybe so they can go to camp on the week, on, during the summer. Did you make sure you knew what you needed to do and the sequence before launching into it? So, you know, encourage, if you're going to teach somebody how to swim, you don't want to learn like, okay, this is the first step. I know what I'm doing here, and then I'll figure the rest of it out along the way. You know, ideally, you want to have a general idea of the sequence of things before launching into it. So behaviors and feelings can be measured, such as the number of times per day something happens, the duration of a temper tantrum or crying or whatever, or even on a scale from one to five. And again, anchor it with actual words that are sufficiently different. Because if I say one, you know, on a scale of one to five, people are like, I don't know, what's a three? Uh, but if you give them words, it's easier. Make goals small and achievable so you can help the person keep from getting discouraged and it gives them frequent rewards so there's nothing wrong with that especially during initial behavior change um fixed interval or fixed ratio rewards so every time something happens there's a reward for it there's something to be argued for that like every time you go to the gym you're you allow yourself to go get coffee from starbucks afterwards or something it's vital to know the who, what, when, where, and whys of a behavior change and to put reminders around. That doesn't just mean in your head. It can mean text messages on your mobile device. It can mean, you know, write it on your mirror, your bathroom mirror. It can mean, you know, however you get those prompts out there. Effective goals are specific, measurable, achievable, and time limited. Um, anyone should be able to look at your goal and say whether or not you achieved it, which is why we want to have that as evidenced by, because then Jim Bob down the street can look at the list and go, yeah, you did that. Yeah, you did that. No, I haven't seen you do that yet. You know, it, it's relatively objective. Small goals that you can achieve in a week increase confidence and maintain motivation if you're getting that frequent reward. So instead of saying, I am never going to eat gluten or sugar again, Maybe try cutting out added table sugar for a week. So that's a smaller goal. The next week, maybe cut your consumption of sweets, you know, baked goods in half. And then the next week after that, cut your baked goods in half again, and so on. That's how I weaned off um, caffeine. I went 75%, 50%, 25%, and then cold turkey. You can measure intensity or quality with an anchored Likert scale, that one to five scale. Make sure the behaviors you're trying to change actually will help the person achieve the goal that they're setting. I gave several examples of that. You know, you don't want to have them doing something unless it's going to help them move closer to their ultimate goal. Goals should follow the knowledge, skills, and abilities progression, and sub-goals need to be small, and reinforcement should be frequent. When, I shouldn't have said if, when motivation wanes, because it will, you know, just like going to work some days, you just don't want to do it. Um, if motivation wanes, revisit that decisional balance exercise and maybe figure out why the motivation is going down and how to increase it again. Oops.
Are there any questions? Let's see. Oh, and with writing on the mirror, one thing that I have learned the hard way um, is a lot of times we will habituate to having things up on the mirror. So if you write it up on the mirror, you may notice it for the first week and then quit paying attention. So periodically erase it and move it somewhere else. Or like Heather said, um, put up, oh yeah, you guys are seeing boo-boo, um, put up sticky notes and periodically move the sticky notes so you, you actually see them instead of just looking right past them. The same thing is true if you've ever set up your Google Calendar to text you whenever you have appointments and things. It's easy to, it just sends up a pop-up notice and you don't even check it anymore. So just do be aware of the concept of habituation where we just start, stop ignoring or start ignoring things after a while if they're too regular. Alrighty, everybody have an amazingly fabulous weekend next week. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.